0: Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Fork Jenkins and I'll be your host for today's episode of Adamant Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adamant Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. Today, we will be airing the second episode of our series entitled, Revisiting COVID One Year Later, where we explore the effects of the pandemic on different communities. In the first part of this series, we talked about domestic and intimate partner violence with Dr. Montesanti. In this episode, you'll hear an interview that Adamant Eve contributors Michelle Dang and Luis Fuentes conducted with Dr. Spitzer, a professor at the University of Alberta's School of Public Health, about how COVID-19 has unveiled some major issues that migrant communities have had to face in regards to labor rights, health care, and access to services. Let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Adam
1: and Eve. Uh, My name is Michelle Dang. Um, I will be one of your hosts today. Um, I am a third-year pharmacy student, so I have um, a great interest for health and and for a lot of the social aspects of accessing health. So I'm very excited to be here today.
2: My name is Luis Cifuentes. I collaborate with Adam and Eve as well. I did my bachelor's degree in science, so I'm very interested in this COVID pandemic. And um, I We'll like to specialize eventually in education
1: and today we are very excited to be joined by uh, Dr. Denise Spitzer uh, to talk about COVID and COVID's relation to migration specifically so Dr. Spitzer is a feminist medical anthropologist currently working as a professor with the University of Alberta School of Public Health as well as serving as an adjunct professor with the University of Ottawa's Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies so, Dr. Spitzer, if you wanted to just uh, give a brief introduction of yourself, your background, your work, your research focus.
3: Great. Well, first off, thank you very much for uh, inviting me here today. And I'm very excited to be here on CJSR since I am an alumni of uh, the uh, station. And it's always uh, exciting to see how the uh, work is evolving. And uh, Adam and Eve certainly has a long and uh, storied history in uh community radio. So uh, it's really a great pleasure. As you mentioned, I'm an anthropologist by training and inclination, and I've been working with migrant workers for well over 20 years, um, both in Canada and also in Asia. And I'm certainly interested in really the impact of global processes on communities, on bodies, and how we can use intersectional analysis to really unpack how people are affected by those global processes and how they resist them as well.
2: Okay, thank you very much for that introduction. So for the first question, since the start of the pandemic, we have witnessed a wave of narratives accompanying the different stages of policy measures. Uh, We saw, for example, at the beginning, a spike of xenophobia, which is gaining track now again with some rhetoric and some narratives about making china pay for for this mm-hmm. or those type of of, of um, rhetoric then we saw a romanticization of exploitation with uh, essential workers and divided the working class into like high skilled and priority workers mm-hmm. and frontline workers and now we're seeing more of a tyrannization of healthcare restrictions and um, categorizing them as communist or authoritarian moves for mm-hmm. example here in edmonton So in what ways have you seen that the pandemic has impacted different communities? How is this different for different groups, for example, temporary foreign workers and refugees?
3: At the beginning of the pandemic, the people most affected, of course, by the uh, both layoffs and also by being placed in the most kind of vulnerable positions were, in fact, Uh, racialized migrant workers. So a lot of people who are working, of course, as we know, as uh, personal support workers, or uh, nurses or nursing assistants, who are working in the agricultural sector, in meatpacking, those are occupations that are really uh, overly populated with migrant and, ma- and racialized communities. We also saw, at least uh, from the statistics I've seen in the U.S., that many of the people who were laid off in the service sector were also disproportionately uh, racialized migrant communities. So it's, it really has a, almost a dual impact in, in that regard. With respect to the, the kind of health racism that we have uh, witnessed, I think there's a long legacy of that. If we think about the ways in which Tuberculosis was seen as as something that was carried on the backs of migrants, or other forms of disease were you know always attributed to migrant populations, and so I think that and and of course with SARS we saw that erupting as well and Ebola, that these are unfortunately common tropes that we should be prepared to resist, but as we see they're they're very uh, potent tropes and especially since, you know, we presume that the that the virus emerged in a particular part of the world, that that has become, of course, you know, highly politicized, and has been subject to all kinds of, you know, conspiracy theories. And rightfully, you know, we need to be investigating how this uh, disease emerged. But you know, the evidence suggests that it was, you know, had zoonotic origins, and it was certainly not something, for instance, that was, you know, created in a lab or unleashed in the world. But again, it's a lot easier to grab onto those kinds of discourses when we already have those underlying racist uh, tendencies within our uh, society. So I think that one of the things the pandemic has done is really lifted the veil off of the existing social inequalities and existing racist discourses. And unfortunately, it's been, uh, I guess, Employed in ways that uh, helps some people to uh, to other people and to uh, to find some kind of you know, scapegoat essentially for this this pandemic.
2: I don't know if you're familiar with what Jason Kenney uh, said when he mentioned that there was a spread of COVID nineteen in a certain community. It was heavily reliant on South Asian communities in that specific area and making that association in the public. So if Yeah, unfortunately, I
3: mean, I, I'm, I'm in Ontario right now, so I, I, okay, yeah. I don't pay as much attention to Jason Kenney as I should. But I think one of the things that we have to be careful of is the. Kind of rhetoric that sometimes politicians and other public figures use in uh, promoting and uh, sustaining these these racist uh, discourses. Just recently, for instance, the governor of Texas, Abbott, had blamed COVID outbreaks, you know, pandemic in Texas on migrants coming from the uh, south of their border. I think one of the best responses I heard yesterday uh, when this occurred was that someone from one of the health authorities said, well, unless those people are coming via Britain, which is the greatest variant that we're seeing that's been problematic, then it's really not an issue. And I think that you know we've heard in Alberta politicians also citing a particular community as being somehow responsible for, uh, you know, contagion. And I think that we need to uh, step back and think about why, for instance, we might see um, different communities having those, you know, the disease pooled in certain communities. And we need to then attend to issues we call the social determinants of health. So, what kinds of jobs do people have? Are there jobs where they have very little control over their work environment? For instance, if you are uh, working in a factory, if you're working in a, um, a long-term care home, all of those kinds of environments where you are often potentially exposed to other people in close proximity, um, particularly in, in places where uh, you know a congregate living or a congregate working situation. And then maybe you're going um, home to a, uh, an environment where there are many people living together in a small area. So these are not any individual's fault. It's not the fault of any community. These are social issues that need to be dealt with. And when you don't have space to isolate yourself, if you are even uh, concerned about potentially being exposed to uh, the COVID-19 virus, then the issue is a social one. It's not uh, the issue of a a single individual or community.
1: Yeah, so our next question kind of just ties into what you were talking about before with the migrant workers. So the current pandemic has exposed a lot of labor issues that temporary foreign workers were already facing, as well as um, created some new issues. So we've seen it in cases like the Cargill outbreak, and then again, more recently with the Alamo outbreak where workers, and a majority of whom are uh, migrant workers, they're deemed essential but aren't receiving the protection or the support that they need. Um, So what do you think are some of the main issues that migrant workers are facing right now in terms of employment relationships and then um, with like community reactions as well?
3: Well, certainly temporary foreign workers are by um, almost definition in precarious situations. So they're tied to an employer. And of course, they're working here in Canada because they need to be sending remittances back home to their families. And so that means that uh, whatever you you do, you don't want to lose your job. Complaining about working conditions makes one vulnerable to that. Of course, job loss. Some of the employers as well, we know, have not um, been... uh, encouraging of people staying home if they feel sick or they are docking people's pay. Those kinds of situations means that people are going to work when perhaps they shouldn't be. And again, this is uh, not just happening with, with temporary foreign workers, but because of their precarious status, they're often vulnerable to those kinds of pressures. The other thing that can happen too is that because people have work visas which need to be renewed, If you are at home and if maybe you can't get out, it means you can't renew your visa. And there are people who are losing their their documented status through absolutely no fault of their own because uh, sometimes offices were closed or sometimes uh, they just haven't been able to um, get out of their homes in order to renew their visas. And that also puts them in an incredibly stressful and precarious situation. And as we know, stress also has an impact on the body and makes people also more vulnerable to uh, infection. So all of those things I I think can be resolved by actually ensuring that people have one, permanent status upon arrival. Uh, If people are here working for us and contributing to our society, they're growing our food they're taking care of people who are vulnerable. They're doing all of those kinds of jobs that many people in Canada don't want to do. And they deserve to have access, not just to health care, they deserve to have a right to to live in stability, and to bring their families and to contribute to um, Canadian society. So I think that the issue is much broader than just you know access to health care, although certainly access to health care is, is also important. Um, it also means access to social stability, and social stability leads to greater social cohesion, which I think we all want. I have to say in the work I've done uh, over the years around um, migration, that we need people in Canada who have a whole range of skills, and right now our migration system is streamed such that we provide access to permanent status more readily to people who are so-called high skilled and we don't provide that same kind of opportunities and avenues for permanent residency for people who are so-called low skilled and there's whole kinds of issues around who is considered low skilled or not but in a, a study i did a number of years ago Uh, it was interesting to see that people who had come to Canada at a time when we accepted people with a variety of different skill levels, that they had over time really felt dedicated to this country. And in fact, they became much more upwardly mobile compared to people who had come as high-skilled workers who found that they were not able to actually use those skills because of all the different barriers that were put into place. And they were actually quite disappointed um, with their experiences here in Canada. And some of them said, I feel like I was lied to when I came to Canada. So I think that this whole uh, situation with the pandemic, again, is kind of peeling off all of these different layers that we have pasted over our image of ourselves and our society. And we need to be thinking in a, in a broader and a, I think a long-term scale about what kind of world we want to create and what kind of society we want to have. So I'm hoping that that something actually might positive could grow out of this if we, you know, provide the sort of evidence and mobilize to a better outcome.
2: You make wonderful points. Like an immigrant myself, I found that like I came, I think it was, there's this current wave in Canada of accepting students now, like mm-hmm. be, be becoming like the hub yeah. for education or international education. And it does like open a lot of uh, you know, avenues for right. people who are stuck in, in their own country, like education rates are like unable to fulfill the intake of students. So like we have to like look around and stuff like that. And, uh, and when you take on that job of applying to another country, all the stuff, you kind of respect the laws of the country, kind of thing. You you respect the bureaucracy that they built to kind of accept you into it and all that stuff. But now we've seen, for example, here very specific to Alberta, like uh, political action by cons- the Conservative Party to eliminate red tape in mm-hmm. in the in the in the workplace, right? Like, for example, forming safety committees among the mm-hmm. workers and stuff like that being like no longer necessary. So now you're living immigrants without political action because we cannot vote and uh, we cannot advocate for our own safety in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know if you, you wanna kind of expand on that.
3: I think it's, uh, we are fortunate for instance, in Alberta to have some really excellent advocacy groups like uh, Migranti International uh, Alberta. They are have done a lot of great work and are continuing to do a lot of great work with advocating for migrants in the meatpacking industry. And actually, I'm part of an ad hoc committee with frontline workers and uh, Migrant Alberta and some other academics and some other uh, individuals who are looking at how we can build a migrant uh, justice coalition through our work towards uh, health for all. And I think it's important that we start to um, really uh, accumulate information and evidence about the kinds of contributions that migrant workers, regardless of their status, make to the economy and to the society so that we can really uh, develop and mobilize policymakers and mobilize the uh, Alberta community to really understand the kind of contributions that are being made and to demand uh, that people have regular status and to demand that they have a right to stay if if they so desire. So I think that because people who are in precarious situations often don't have the kind of opportunities um, to speak that we need to collect whatever voices of those who are willing to, to do so and certainly Um, center whatever our actions are based on their desires and their needs. But we also need to, I think, work in coalition with policymakers and health professionals and uh, immigrant serving agencies, uh, students, researchers, activists to really forward
1: that um, program. And our next question kind of just ties into like the social determinants of health we were talking about mm-hmm. before. So this pandemic, on the other hand, has also uncovered an existing gap in healthcare and access to certain services and government aids, uh, where certain communities, including migrant communities, aren't able to access the care that they need due to financial and social barriers. So unfortunately, this isn't a new shortcoming in uh, Canada's public or healthcare system. So can you just speak more about like the existing general inequities that these communities face and kind of the systems that are in place that perpetuate these inequities?
3: Uh, That's a a really uh, good question. We know, for instance, that often people are unfamiliar with how to actually even navigate the system to know what resources are out there. People are often who are migrants may be working in multiple part-time jobs. So being even able to access services that are available to them um, might be moot if you don't have the time to actually get to a clinic or a healthcare provider or any other form of services if you don't have the time to do so. Uh, There are of course language barriers. There are differences in the ways in which people even conceptualize health and what is an appropriate treatment. And for people who are undocumented, um, it's very difficult for them to find healthcare providers who can uh, will accept them as patients or to provide services. Even when you have access to health, uh, a healthcare professional, it costs money to um, access lab services or an x-ray. And so those can become barriers as well, even if people can access maybe a, a, a frontline worker. So all of those kinds of, of barriers are uh, in place. And often there's a, a, a shifting line of services that people can or cannot access that are covered under the Alberta Health Care Services for people who are not permanent residents. And that can be quite problematic to kind of Navigate and and to determine even what services might be available to them. So I think all of those issues are quite you know present and have been present and are exacerbated in an, uh, an epidemic and pandemic.
2: Right. Yeah, and we saw that, for example, in the case of policing, uh, Black Lives Matter, stuff like that. Those very racist kind of undertones that are built behind the system kind mm-hmm. of are being accentuated at, at this point, mm-hmm. and. We we'll often forget that when using the word migrant we don't think about indigenous and black people So many are being displaced and forced to leave their native land or territory. Now how do you think labeling and not labeling these groups affects policy making generally and uh, perhaps maybe um, an individual's identity?
3: As I mentioned in my introduction I like to apply an intersectional analysis to the work I do. And so I see that individuals and communities are, you know, comprise a constellation of different social indicators, whether it's gender, sexuality, uh, racialized status, migrant status, indigeneity, all of those things really impact who we are and how we present to the world and the kinds of ways in which people respond to us and the kind of resources and agency we have All of those things really come together and produce who we are uh, as individuals and who we are in relation to to community. One of the things that I I didn't mention is is the issue of geography because years ago, I did some work with um, migrant domestic workers living in rural Alberta. If you are living with your employer or you're living say in a a resource camp in in Northern Alberta, if you wanna get access to healthcare, you're reliant on your employer to provide you with transportation um, or the time off. And that becomes even more difficult when you're in a remote and rural community. So that's another uh, aspect that we sometimes forget to uh, consider. But all of those things, I think, really need to be considered when we are doing policymaking, when we are developing uh, services, when we're doing research, uh, and in all of our considerations
1: we kind of wanted to talk about the colonialist aspects behind um, how migrants are being forced to leave their home countries because of colonialist impacts. Mm -hmm. And then what what kind of issues they're facing when, when they're migrating.
3: I think one of the things that we need to consider when we're talking about migration under conditions of neoliberal globalization is the relationship between sending and receiving countries within this kind of matrix of Again, neoliberalism, and the notion that somehow you can migrate your way out of poverty, and this is again, we call it the migration and development nexus, the notion that people have been in um, poor countries, of course, without sort of acknowledging that they are poor because they have been exploited. Um, by colonial powers and neo-colonial powers and by the, the wealthy within those, those nations who have been, of course, receiving the favors of those uh, former colonial powers. And that while people were, uh, were being displaced from rural areas as uh, agribusinesses grew, that uh, you had a lot of um, huge urban resettlement and that meant there was a lot of surplus labor. And when you have that kind of surplus labor, you could get people could perhaps be thinking about why they are there and under underutilized and not being able to make a living. So one of the ways of ensuring that people aren't going to organize and maybe foment some kind of political turmoil is to ensure that um, they're basically provided with opportunities to go abroad. So a cynical view, but I think in fact, you know, it's something that has played out over decades in, in reality. But it, there is this, again, uh, kind of premise that people can migrate to another country where uh, they can take up jobs that their own citizens and residents don't want to, to do, and that they will make money and send those remittances back home and lift their households out of poverty. And of course, we're also seeing influx of of climate change migrants, people who is just, it's just no longer tenable to live in a particular country, and people have to move because they have no other options. And under... The neoliberal paradigm is that there's this notion that people have made a choice to migrate, when in fact, often that choice is no choice at all. I mean, you either uh, starve or be really underpaid in your home country, or you will try to move to a place like Canada or you know a- another country in the global north to make money to send home. And of course, it's based on a precarity and this notion of return migration. So the idea being that you will exploit people's labor for a particular period of time, and then they're sent back to their home country, where, you know, in fact, there are issues about repatriation and resettlement. So I think it's within that context that we see, uh, my, you know, migrant labor uh, coming to Canada. And uh, we also see that it's, it's both a racialized trend and it's a gendered trend. So the, the global demand, for instance, for care workers, it's feminized, and it's really predicated on Having you know women uh, from the global south really taking up the caregiving labor of work that is assigned to women in the global north, and that has that has actually been uh, something that has been a, a quite a steady growth in the brand for labor. So I think we also need to to really think about what that means for families, you know, in both. Um, receiving and sending countries, in terms of the kind of gendered labor aspects and what that means for the the well-being of families in both of those countries as well. There's just uh, there's so much work to do, so many places, right? And I think uh, one of the things that's important that we do is to really link the struggle of migrant workers with what's going on with the pandemic, because that's really, you know, a big focus of uh, people's attention right now, these things are linked, right? Who are the people providing the care? Who are the people doing the food, doing those, those service jobs? Um, who are the people who are showing up? And so I think that if we can uh, draw attention to the kind of struggles they're having and understand that this is a, a sector of the population that is contributing to the, the collective health and well being that hopefully that's a way of moving towards a more just Alberta.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much.
3: Yeah. Thanks.
1: Thanks very much for being here.
0: Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produce this week's show in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to be in the traditional territory of the diverse indigenous peoples of this land. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here in practice for yourself, the communities you are part of, and the larger systems that shape our daily access and opportunities. Thanks again to our contributors Michelle Deng and Luis Cifuentes for this episode. And thanks to Dr. Denise Spitzer for giving us an opportunity to learn more about the challenges that have been heightened for migrant workers and how we can support and advocate for them. If you missed the first episode of this series where we talked to Dr. Stephanie Montesanti about COVID's impact on domestic violence survivors, you can find it on any podcasting platform under Adamant Eve. And while you're there, you can also check out the episode that we did a year ago with epidemiologist Stephanie Booth on the racialization of disease. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out. So if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, Rose Eva Forks-Jenkins. Have an adamant evening.